You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. All right. When has Paul ever visited a city and said some really nice words about God and Jesus and not get almost run out, or he did get run out? I mean, everywhere he goes around the Mediterranean, it seems like he's causing a ruckus by this gospel that he's preaching. And we wonder whether it's actually making an impact, whether it's making an influence, whether the society around him is actually turning to Christ, and people are turning away from idols and false religions, and, it's, and if it's even having any effect. Well, we find today in the passage that was just read that there is an effect that has happened, and we're going to go into that with more detail. But one thing is for sure, if you desire to live an active Christian life, there will be some persecution. I hope for you, not the same type of persecution that befell Paul, because almost everywhere that he went, 70% of the time he was about to be stoned before the Christian church dragged him out of that so that he could be saved. But I think all of us who desire to live an active Christian life amongst people who are of the world, and sometimes even who are Christians, who are shallow in their faith, we will be persecuted. And what does the Bible have to say to us about that? And we're going to get into that. Let's pray first. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we have to worship you. We thank you for the privilege that we have the freedom to be able to worship you. Lord, you deserve our worship. You deserve our honor. You deserve our praise. Regardless of whatever is going on in our life, whether we, in our opinion, think things are good, or in our opinion, we think things are really bad, societally or even ourselves, we still choose to give you the glory. We still choose to give you the honor because you created the world and because you have a sovereign and divine and good plan in it. And regardless of whatever is happening, even if the Christian church was being persecuted, even if we were exiled to another country, we know, Lord, that in the end, you win, and because you win, we know that we win through Christ Jesus. So we thank you. We desire to worship you. Lord, in the midst of this week, some of us may have a lot of pain. Some of us may have a lot of suffering. I pray, Lord, that we would give these pains and sufferings to you, if we have not already, through the worship music, that through this time of preaching, that we would spend time with you, reflecting upon your word and giving those things that are unworthy to you asking forgiveness and even the worthy things we give it to you and we desire to do and think about these worthy things in a godly way so our entire lives would be a worship to you lord we pray for the needs of our church people who still need jobs people who need healing physically and mentally and maybe people who need a spiritual revival we're sick spiritually and we need to come back to you our first love I do pray for that revival in our spiritual life. I do pray for the healing in our minds and our bodies. That in Jesus' name, that you would heal them supernaturally. Not just by the doctor's hand or by the psychologist's hand, but by your hand, Lord. And we pray that you would provide for those of us who are in need and who are in dire straits when it comes to um, our financial uh, situation. Lord, we thank you. We gather here. Uh, of all different backgrounds just to praise you regardless. And we pray, Lord, that our time sitting here in the pews 
worshiping you as a congregation in spirit and truth would be honorable to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in the last leg of Acts. Can you believe that? We started, I think, about one and a half or two years ago with the book of Luke. And then we thought, you know what, we'll just finish the book of Luke, and that's it. And then I remember sitting with Pastor Michael and Brian Yee and some of the other deacons, and we thought, you know, we've got to go to Acts, because Luke's not done. Acts continues, Luke. Do you, do you guys really want to do that? And then everyone said, yeah, I think it would be great, because I think we can always be reminded of what the early church was all about and see how we comport and conform to what the early church looks like, to challenge our church. Anyways, we want to have a missional lifestyle. We want to continue to church plant as part of this Great Oaks Church Planning Association. Why not go through Acts? And so we went through Luke, and we went through Acts, and now there's only eight chapters left, and we're almost going to be done. And then we'll be done by the time Pastor Curtis comes. And so a, truly a Sunday event, chapter, has tr- will truly be completed before this next chapter of our church when Pastor Curtis comes. Now, I want to share with you a story of Flora. Flora is a, a friend of mine who was part of the same Sadaka group that I used to have when I was an intern at this Japanese church about 10 years ago. We, the pastor called these groups Sadaka groups, Sadaka is uh, the Hebrew word for righteous. And so we had these home groups called Sadak groups, and often we would share about how our lives were doing. Well, we had a, a personal retreat to Big Bear with this Sadaka group, where it was half uh, hanging out, learning from the word, half going out uh, skiing or snowboarding. And as we were going, she shared with me the story of how as a young Christian, and she was a young Christian at that time, meaning spiritually young, although we were in our uh, early uh, 30s or, or late 20s. She shared about how recently she just read through half of the Old Testament as a new Christian. And I'm like, that's great. That's amazing. How many of you know new Christians that even get to half of the Old Testament? They get to like Leviticus, and they're like, that's it. I'm not reading the Bible anymore. Let's use a devotional guide because that is more helpful. Just give me a couple of verses and give me a nice story, and that's my time with God, right? How many of us even go through half of the Old Testament? And she went through half of it, and she said, you know what? I felt convicted and compelled. I said, okay, what were you convicted and compelled of? And she said, well, my family is a Buddhist family, and we even have a prayer room dedicated to Buddhist gods and idols. I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Because if any of you have even read a third of the Old Testament, let alone have, you know that God has never liked idols. Whenever you have God, and whenever you have idols, usually the idols fall apart, get burned, or get destroyed sooner or later. And she said, so I felt that I should destroy the idols. I'm like, what? <laughs> I thought she was going to ask her parents, hey, do we really have to have these idols here? Um, because maybe we, we, we don't need to have these idols, because these, these idols invite evil spirits into our house. But she went one, one step further and did what the prophets of the Old Testament used to do. And in, at one night, when the parents, her parents were gone, 
she tiptoed into the idol room and then took the head of the idol and toppled it and it broke into pieces. And then she ran back into her room as if nothing happened and did not tell her parents. Obviously, they're going to know what happened, right? Or maybe, maybe she can lie and say, oh, it must have been an earthquake or maybe the wind. Or maybe you just hadn't reset the idol for a while and it slowly, because of a certain incline on the table, it was falling and it just happened to fall uh, yesterday night. Well, she couldn't lie because she was a Christian. But she sort of was embarrassed for doing that. And so when the parents came back, yes, they saw, and they were very mad. And they asked, why did you do that? And she told them, because I'm a Christian, I don't think we should be doing idol worship as a family, and that he had a big, giant argument. <laughs> now, the reason why I share this story isn't because I encourage you, if you have idol rooms and prayer rooms, whether your background is Hindu, Buddhist, or some other uh, a religion that has idols to go and destroy the idols I think there are better ways to handle it maybe first talk about it with your parents and maybe evangelize your parents so that they become Christian first so that they themselves would take the responsibility of removing those, those idols but regardless when she became a Christian just like us we have to do something about sin we're bothered by it even if we live in it and enjoy it, we still find it a burden. We can't live with it for long. We need to do something about it. And usually it will be, we need to become a moderate Christian and make our Christianity shallow enough so we can tolerate this evil, or we get rid of the evil altogether in order to grow as a Christian. And so something happens when we become Christians. And that is not just individually, but also in the society. The way we live, the way we act. And if there are groups of people that become Christians that live in a certain area of the society, usually you will see a difference. There will be a difference. There will be less sin, and there will be more righteousness. In the ancient Mediterranean world, if you were not a philosopher or worshiper of your local native gods, your faith would probably be in the popular gods of ancient Greek mythology. So, names such as Zeus, Hera, Apollo, Ares, which Paul had to encounter on Mars Hill. These names come up. And these names of antiquity and names that we recognize today were the gods that were worshipped as ardently as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was back then. And although Zeus was the father of all gods, there was one god who was worshipped more widely in the pantheon than the others because this one god related to the needs of the common people more than Zeus or any of the other gods. And this was the goddess Artemis. You guys heard of her? Artemis, the goddess of childbearing, goddess of the wilderness, goddess of the hunt, and goddess of the wild animals. So much so that Posanias, the second Greek traveler and geographer, noted that Artemis was worshipped more widely than any other deity he knew in his travels around the Greco-Roman world. And we can understand why most of the people in the Mediterranean at that time were hunters, were farmers, were agrarian, and had families. And which god out of all the god had the combination of those 
attributes that that was the god or goddess of, and it was Artemis. So Artemis was even more popular and more worshipped and prayed to than even the father Zeus himself. And out of all the places Artemis was worshipped in the Greco-Roman world, there was one place she was worshipped most, and that was the city of Ephesus, the city that was the heart of the Artemisian cult. And I don't just say that because it sounds cool that it was the heart or capital of the worship of Artemis. It literally was the capital, the center point of Artemis worship. It was at this Ephesus that people believed Zeus cast down from the heavens an actual stone that had the literal face of this goddess Artemis. And because of that, they decided to build the greatest temple, worship center for this god in all of the Greco-Roman world called the Temple of Artemis, the Grand Temple of Artemis. And it was considered even one of the seven wonders of the ancient Greco-Roman world. So you have the other six, the Great Pyramids of Giza. I think all of us know the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Lighthouse of Alexandria in, in uh, Egypt, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, and the Colossus of Rhodes. We probably have heard of the Colossus and of the Great Pyramids in, in Egypt. But the Temple of Artemis was also one of these seven wonders and probably was considered by a Greco-Roman citizen to be one of the best wonders or the best wonders. Because Antipater of Sidon, who was a Greek poet in the second century BC, wrote, I have gazed on the walls of impregnable Babylon along which chariots may race. So in the Old Testament, when you read that Babylon fell, it was quite an amazing thing. It was unbelievable. How can Babylon fall to the Medes and the Persians. This is impossible. Babylon had walls that were so wide and so tall, so thick, that you could have multiple horses and chariots ride amongst its, its walls, on the top of the walls. And on the, and on the Zeus by the banks of the Alphaeus, I have seen the hanging gardens and the colossus of the Helios, the great man-made mountains of the lofty pyramids, and the gigantic tome of Malzulus. But when I saw the sacred house of Artemis that towers to the clouds, the others were placed in the shade, for the sun himself has never looked upon its equal outside of Olympus. So this Artemis and the worship of Artemis in this temple was a very big thing in Ephesus. At this temple, she was honored as first amongst all thrones. She was honored as the queen of the heavens. She was honored as the savior of the world. And she was honored as Lord. Who does that sound like to us, right? This temple of Artemis also had its religious wardens who sometimes doubled as either silversmiths or coppersmiths whose business it was to make idols for the temple, local and foreign worshipers, and people who wanted to tour the seven wonders of the world and collect an idol as a souvenir back home. And it seems that being a smith of this type was very profitable, as there is evidence 
of various silversmith guilds in ancient Ephesus. So, for example, they have found, archaeologists have found, an Ephesian vault with a tome dated at the first century belonging to an M. Antonius Hermia, and he is labeled as a silversmith and shrine maker who belonged to the Association of Silversmiths in Ephesus. One of these temple wardens and silversmiths was a man by the name of Demetrius, whose archaeological inscription named him a temple warden and a son of Monophilus, grandson of Tryphon. And as preached before by others, there was a sizable population of Jewish people there in Ephesus who had their own synagogue, but whose worship of one true God was truly dwarfed by the immense popularity of the worship of Artemis. Then about 55 AD, things started to change. And there was a slight turn in the religio-cultural influence in Ephesus and its surround. What was that? Demetrius and his silversmith guild, as well as other idol-making guilds, began to see a decrease in profits. There is an observable decrease in temple attendance at this great temple from locals and citizens of Asia Minor. Some of these smiths had already seen of people in their own city of Ephesus throwing away magical enchantments, scrolls, and idols that they made into a fire in order to begin worshiping another deity. And when the Bible describes the amount of value of all of these things that they threw to be burned, it totaled up to about $4 million in our modern day's currency. $4 million worth of idolatry and worth of pagan magical scrolls. And all the people that came out to be able to throw all of these things, there was a great revival that happened in Ephesus against Artemis and for another god. Others had relatives near and far turn away from the worship of Artemis to worship someone else. It was as if that there was this one god that was coming through Turkey, or what was known back then as Asia Minor, to drive away all other gods. And even at this central location of the capital of Artemis worship at Ephesus, and the name of this god was someone they called Jesus Christ. And they noticed that there was a group of people who called themselves the way who was promoting this new God. And that they had already heard of their leader, Paul, and his associates, Gaius and Aristarchus, turn away people from Artemis to this Jesus for over two years already. They were losing money. They were losing influence. They were losing their religio-cultural heritage at the very capital capital of a place that they thought would never happen, the capital of their goddess's worship. And they were mad and at an emotional boiling point. Something had to be done. And we get a close-up view of what happens next, starting at Acts 19.23. So if you would like, you can go ahead and look at the screen, or you can turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 23, and we're going to go all the way to verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. Verse 23, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. 
Now, you have to remember, the reason why there was a great disturbance about the way, which was the designation for the Christian movement, was because of what happened about that time. And if you remember, the previous time we talked about Acts, in the, Acts chapter 18 all the way to 1923, there was a great revival of worship of Jesus. Paul had already for two years been preaching Jesus Christ, not just at Ephesus, but in Asia Minor, specifically the western provinces of Asia Minor. And it literally says at the end of Acts chapter 18 that the whole province was becoming Christian. And later on, in the early part of chapter 19, even the people who were shallow Christians were now rededicating their life to Christ by throwing away all of their pagan idols and all of their pagan scrolls. Christianity was so popular that even Jewish people who used to exercise in the name of God, I don't mean exercise, but exorcise, cast out demons in the name of God, started using the name of Jesus, even though they didn't even believe in Jesus because using the name of Jesus in their exorcism ceremonies had a better chance of success than using just the name of God. And you read what happened to one of them when it backfired on them. But this is how influential Christianity had become in Asia Minor and in the most western coastal city of Asia Minor, or one of the most western coastal cities, Ephesus. And that is why about that time, the people who did not worship Jesus, who were still standouts, felt threatened. And a great disturbance occurred about the Christian movement, about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Now, for those of you that like to read um, literary context and like to, to devote your time to reading every little detail, only Luke, out of all of the New Testament writers, uses this phraseology. Instead of writing, brought in a lot of business. Only Luke, in Luke and Acts, will write, brought in no little business in order to make the emphasis that they were making a lot of business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades. So this wasn't just the silversmith's guild. The coppersmith's guild was also brought in. All the different metal workers who made trinkets and idols of not just Artemis, but different Greek gods and even the local native aboriginal gods were brought in because they were losing money as a result of people coming to know Christ and throwing away their idols and no longer buying their idols. And said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Again, um, this is not... Japan or China, this is Asia Minor, okay, what we now call Turkey. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Look at the inconsistency and the illogicity of what he is saying. In the end of verse 26, Demetrius himself says, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. I mean, isn't it obvious that 
if it's man-made, then how can it be truly a god? You just made it, and you just admitted that it is man-made. I mean, you can go outside, cut down a tree, and make a ball and call that a god. And in their view, that would be a god. So look at how, first of all, illogical it is. He even admits that, but he cannot see that. But he really is caring not just for the money, okay? I don't want to paint Demetrius as a person who is just greedy and, and is losing uh, his, his business. Of course, he's losing his business and he's worried about that because it's his livelihood. He has to, he has to feed his family with this. But he really is a true, passionate art, Artemis worshiper. And he's afraid that the name of Ephesus, the name of the temple, and Artemis herself will lose influence and become ashamed and embarrassed because of that loss of influence to this new God called Jesus Christ. That she will be robbed of her divine majesty. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Now, this is believable because, again, this is at the heart of Artemis' worship. They would do this. They began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. We don't know much about Gaius and Aristarchus, but we know at least a little about Gaius. Remember when we went through 1 Corinthians? And Paul shared the gospel, and there were people that were saved. And remember, he said that, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except for two people, Crispus and Gaius. So Gaius was one of the two people that he actually um, baptized. So we see him in Corinthians and in a few other books um, of uh, Paul and as well uh, as John. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. And this is logical. The theater is the place where in Ephesus they would not gather only to watch games and gladiatorial contests and plays, but it was a place where they would have their town hall meetings. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now this is significant because this means that in those two years that he used Ephesus as a central base for evangelism and ministry, that as he traveled around Ephesus to the surrounding provinces, people who were governing officials, high up people, people who were in authority, believed in Christ. And as a result, they became friends of Paul. And even these people told him, don't go into this theater. You're going to get killed. You're going to die. Oh, by the way, don't worry about Gaius and Aristarchus. They survived because later on in the next chapter we see that they're still there. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Now, how is this possible? It is obvious why they're there. They were there because they didn't like the fact that Paul and his friends was decreasing Artemis worship and increasing the name of Jesus Christ. 
But remember, Ephesus was a tourist attraction. And so when you see a group of people shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and everyone agrees that Artemis is great, because most people that were traveling were not Christians, but were Greeks and Romans, and they see some kind of commotion in the theater where they have town hall meetings or plays, there will be a whole bunch of people that would follow them into that theater and wonder what's going on. And because most of them did not, were not there for the beginning of that meeting that Demetrius had with all the other craftsmen, they would not know what actually was going on. They were just there because they saw some drama and then wanted to see what was going on. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Now, why did the Jews push Alexander to the front? Why did they even feel like they needed to do that? Why didn't they just hide behind? I mean, they should be happy. Finally, these Christians who are usurping not only the religions of Greece and Rome, but also of their own Judaism, are getting their just desserts. Well, the reason why is because the Greco-Roman world also knew that the Jews didn't believe in Artemis or any of their gods, and they didn't like them either. And because a lot of the Christians were former Jews. And so they were afraid that they would categorize themselves, the Jews, along with the Christians, followers of the way. And so they felt that they needed to defend themselves. And that's why in verse 34 it says, But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you believe that? Two hours. That's a long time. All right? I can say, praise God. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord for five minutes and I'll get really tired. These guys went two hours. Now, of course, it probably wasn't great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again! For two hours. It probably was throughout the two hours they said, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they had some sort of a worship service to um, her, but it wasn't just, great is Artemis for two hours, just that. It was a summary of what happened. Verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Now it's very interesting to note that the city clerk, the mayor, who would know who Paul is because he's been there for two years, over two years already, no noticed that Paul never blasphemed Artemis directly. Instead, Paul was against idol worship. But he never said the name Artemis and, and blasphemed that name directly. Even though if you asked Paul himself, would you be for Artemis worship? Of course, he would say no. But that probably was due to the wisdom of Paul in trying to evangelize in a situation where it was very hostile to do so. But he had to still say something. So he would blaspheme the idols in general, but not mention any specific names of the idols. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. 
So basically, the city manager is calming them down. You know how it is. When you're in a riot, you don't care about the proconsuls. You don't care about the judges or, or the police. You know, they're probably part of the problem. They're not doing their job. So we just want to riot, right? So he's calming them down. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Don't you love Paul? I mean, he's not like, oh my goodness. This is not worth it. This is already the 20th time it's happened. <laughs> Maybe I should give up. Um, I got to talk to my life insurance agent because every time I go to, to a new city, no, he's like, okay, yeah, this is normal. Time to go on to Macedonia and do the same thing over there and try to share the gospel so that more people can come to know Christ. No complaints. No complaints. Just moving ahead. Now, what is Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to tell us here in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 to 21? I think the main point is this. Even when there is a great revival to Christian faith, be ready also for a great persecution. Now, it may not happen all the time, but even when there is a great revival towards the Christian faith, be ready for a possible great or greater persecution. When the devil knows that he has lost, he may come back even more stronger than before. Everywhere Paul travels, the Christian gospel gains new ground. Both Jews and Gentiles are converted to the Christian faith, including in Ephesus, the followers of Ares couldn't stop the gospel from converting, from converting his worshipers, and now the followers of Artemis cannot either. You would think that more people coming to Christ would mean less people persecuting you. But we learn here that sometimes the opposite happens, especially when the gospel becomes a threat to someone's money, influence, and or worldview. If it doesn't threaten, if you becoming a Christian doesn't threaten the elite's status in terms of losing their money, losing their influence, or losing their philosophical way of thinking, they won't care. But once it influences and affects them, or maybe it's not the elites of the society, it could be your parents, it could be your children, it could be your friends, it could be the philosophy of where you work is different than the philosophy of Christ, then there will be opposition, there will be persecution, because the gospel becomes a threat to someone's money, influence, and or worldview. And it was in Ephesus to all of those idol makers. Now in the mid-90s, uh, I think some of you were part, probably part of this. How many of you were part of this thing called the Promise Keepers Men's Ministry movement back in the 90s? Raise your hand. One person. Okay, Wayne, we need to talk. And Wayne, I know that you cook good barbecue, so maybe we can barbecue also and talk about that and get some good uh, ribeye. But I was part of the Promise Keeper Christian men's movement that swept the nation. And what the Promise Keepers movement was, was a movement where they decided, you know what, men, we need to stand up and be leaders again. 
For too long, we have been complacent. There are, why is it that there are always more women in the church than men? Why are the kids always following? Why, why is it that the kids follow the mom to church and the dads are following the kids who are following the moms to church? Shouldn't it be that the man of the house, the husband, the father is going to church and the mom and the kids are going, following him? And all the child abuse, all the sexual abuse, all of the rape, all of that is because of men doing all of these things. And so, and even in the church. And so, we have to come back together and we need to rededicate our lives to the Lord so that we can be recommitted to God and also our family members and again, be the spiritual leaders that God intended us to be. And so they called all of these great speakers who are great examples of godly men to do these giant stadium conferences and they tried to do one in every capital city of all of the United States. And men drove there in droves. Millions of them attended these conferences and rededicated their lives to Christ. A sort of spiritual revival came on to Christian and non-Christian men who wanted to live more committed lives to God and their families. Millions of men recommitted or made first-time commitments to Jesus Christ and to keep these seven promises. Now, tell me, even if you are a non-Christian, would you consider these seven promises to be a positive thing? Number one, a promise keeper is committed to honoring Jesus Christ through worship, prayer, and obedience to God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, a promise keeper is committed to pursuing vital relationships with a few other men, understanding that he needs brothers to help him keep his promises. Number three, a promise keeper is committed to practicing spiritual, moral, ethical, and sexual purity. Number four, a promise keeper is committed to building strong marriages and families through love, protection, and biblical values. Number five, a promise keeper is committed to supporting the mission of his church by honoring and praying for his pastor and by actively giving his time and resources. Number six, a promise keeper is committed to reaching beyond any racial and denominational barriers to demonstrate the power of biblical unity. Number seven, a promise keeper is committed to influencing his world, being obedient to the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, and the great commission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that you have learned from Jesus Christ and baptizing them in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it seems from all angles that this is a great thing from both a Christian perspective and also a non-Christian perspective. And it seems like it would be a great thing for society, that it will benefit society because instead of men just being slobs and being lazy, is actually actively taking a part in society and being actively involved in the lives of their families, their wife and their children. But then you read the cover of Time magazine in October of 97. Promise Keepers made it to the front page, made it to the cover. And they realized, the world realized that something was happening. It was making a difference in American society. And so they wanted to capture this moment. But this was their opinion, the promise keepers. A new movement is filling stadiums with men asserting their manhood. Asserting their manhood. This week, they rally in Washington. Should they be cheered? or feared. 
I don't know, Wayne, should we be cheered or feared? I don't know. Maybe both. I don't know. But I definitely wasn't thinking about being feared. That wasn't my intention of going there. And one wonders why. Well, the New York Times sort of explained their point of view, that even in such a good thing, they were against it because they interpreted it as something that was intolerant in a certain way. Along comes a men's movement that blames men for every modern malaise, from welfare to teen pregnancy to drug abuse. By hundreds of thousands, men are falling to their knees to beg forgiveness for abandoning, abandoning their children or cheating on their wives or gambling the mortgage or working every weekend. These men behaving badly vow to behave better. They promise to share the dishes and diapering, to make time for heart-to-heart -heart talks, to be humble. Feminists should be thrilled, right? They're not. This weekend, the National Organization for Women now is out picketing the men of Promise Keepers who are massing on the National Mall in Washington. I just don't get it, said Lyndon Poff, a Promise Keeper who owns a collision repair shop in Shalimar, Florida. We're trying to improve ourselves, and we're getting lambasted by these women. Promise Keepers has risen to prominence in seven years by hitting upon a winning formula. Stage men only rallies in sports stadiums and offer a fast-paced mix of Bible-based rules for living, rock and roll hymns, and spiritual catharsis. The group claims that 2.7 million men have attended their events, and afterwards, foreign men support ministries in 20,000 churches. And yes, that they did. I was part of that. Where Promise Keeper sees itself as a legion of sincere Christian do-gooders, now sees the future milit militias of a right-wing theocracy. What Promise Keepers calls men's ministries, now's president, Patricia Ireland, calls stealth political cells. I don't know, Wayne, when I went to Promise Keepers, I wasn't thinking about politics, were you? That was the farthest thing from, from my mind. But for Christians, they saw it as one of the greatest spiritual revivals and evangelistic outreaches in America in the 90s. But for many non-Christians, they saw it as a threat to their political and cultural influence and a return to conservative male chauvinism that they did not want. You're always going to have two sides of the story. You do something great for God, God blesses you. It's a move of God. But there's always going to be opponents for some reason or another. In the end, regardless of whether there is persecution or not, you must continue the Christian mission like Paul did. Promise keepers kept going, and it dramatically changed society for the good. It changed me for the good. I can be a testimony to that. We see time and time again that persecution is just part of the game when we live an active Christian life. The hope that we have isn't freedom from persecution. Actually, if, if you want that, you'll never find it anywhere. To be an American is to have the most freedom from persecution in any part of the civilized world. If you want something more free, you're going to have to go and become independently wealthy and buy your own island. And then you will be free from persecution. And then you'll wonder, oh shoot, I forgot. I need to evangelize the world. Darn it. And then you need to get off that island and go back into persecution. The hope that we have is that there will be a day when we will no longer have to worry about being persecuted for our faith. When we get to heaven or when Christ returns, whichever is first. May God give us strength, boldness, and perseverance.
Until then, let's pray.